There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to The Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, here we are again. We are indeed. Looking forward to today's show as well. And tell us, who do we have today, Greg? So today we're speaking with Don Rogers. Don Rogers has just recently retired from the Alberta Securities Commission, where he was involved in enforcement and has a lot of experience in securities fraud. And so today he's going to be talking a little bit about securities fraud, internet fraud, things to look out for and how people can protect themselves. Really critical timing around this is there is so much fraud around us these days. Maybe even election fraud, some would say. That's correct. I'm not saying that's true or not, but the fraud discussion will be a good one. Absolutely. So looking forward to this. Take it away. Welcome back to The Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. And today we have Don Rogers joining us. Don, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Don, today we're talking about investment fraud or fraud in general. And maybe before we get into that, you could give us a little bit about your background and how you ended up on this call. I came out of retirement 13 years ago, having retired from a 20-long-year career in the music industry. During that time, after I left the music industry, I took courses in communications. I also took courses in technical analysis. So I worked briefly for a Canadian firm as a technical analyst, but really it wasn't my cup of tea. It's not something I could see myself doing for any number of years. But the communication courses that I had taken helped to land me a job at the Alberta Securities Commission. So I worked in Alberta Securities Commission beginning in communications as the public information officer. Basically, I was the first person that somebody who had an issue or a concern or a question, they would call the ASC and I would be the first one they spoke with in most instances. From that, I just developed a really strong interest in why are these people calling me? Why are these issues seem to be coming up again and again and again? And so I started doing a little bit of digging into some of these issues myself and presenting my the information I was able to call from publicly available sources to the enforcement team, particularly the head of enforcement and case assessment, which is where complaints that may be investigated, they land first with case assessment. And from there, a determination is made as to whether or not they're going to assign resources to the complaint to further develop a potential case. And so I started doing this and I got really good at it. They recognized that. And so in 2016, they asked me to move out of communications and I moved over to enforcement. So I was still a public information officer, but I also became a case assessment officer. So some of these cases, when they came in and I learned of them, if there was not already an existing case or looked like a case I could deal with reasonably well and develop the case, I would get it to the point where I'd present it to the head of assessment, then he would make a determination whether or not we want to pursue it. It would still stay in case assessment by a more skilled team. And they would develop it to the point where they say, yes, we need to assign resources. We need to assign an investigator. We need litigation involved here. So that's how I got started. And it was very interesting. It was very satisfying, probably the most satisfying 
career I had, one was fun. This one was actually serving people. And I, and I found for myself that gave me much more job satisfaction than anything I'd ever done previously. So that's where I got start. And I became quite active in case assessment and investigating fraud with the Securities Commission at that point. It seems to me that fraud has probably picked up over the last few years when it comes to investment fraud. Is that a fair assessment? It's always been there. I would say that it probably, to some degree, here in Alberta, it's peaked. And why I say that is that even though you might think that with the development of social media and the internet that fraud become more widespread, it has done that to a degree, but fraud follows the money. So in Alberta, as an example, they were developing these massive real estate projects, many of which ended up in court. And so we had a lot of made in Alberta issues where these guys would go out and they would buy a parcel of land. They would tell the investors they paid X amount for it and this is what they're going to do with it. And they'd go shovel some dirt around. People would throw money into this and the whole thing would just fail and flounder. And they say, hey, we tried our best. They would give proof of same by showing they had caterpillars on the contract. They move pile of dirt from one side to the other. They put in a little bit of infrastructure, but really the whole thing was designed to not be completed. And the bottom line, as you guys know, working in your positions of advisors, there's the exempt market or those securities that don't trade on a stock exchange. Without getting into detail, many people bought these securities who really would not have qualified under the then existing regulations about who would qualify to buy these. And even if they did qualify, they put far too much money into them. And if I was an investment manager with one of these exempt market firms, that were out there, well, I couldn't even say exempt market firm. You probably want to not use that as a reference and edit that part out. <laughs> we're what leaving I mean it in. That, we're leaving it in. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's right. We don't like those guys. And so really, you had firms that were not only developing the projects, but were selling their own securities. So these people were not trained in selling securities. They were not qualified to determine someone's goals and knowledge and interests. There was no know your client requirement for these people. So they could be pumping gas by day and out there hosting a rubber fried chicken seminar at a hotel here in Calgary, talking about how great it would be for everybody to pour all their money into these land development deals. And there were a lot of them. I mean, Alberta was expanding like crazy. So there were an awful lot of these. But the bottom line is these guys that were selling the securities were also developers. So if they're going to pay themselves and they're going to take a 15% commission and collect $30 million, they don't need to develop the project. They're making bank. So there was a lot of fraud in that area. So that's one instance where the local economy here was really the biggest driving force behind that type of fraud in the exempt market. When we've seen the reports that we're running out of oil and oil was hitting $150 a barrel. What happened then in Alberta is, is, and I was called on one of these, these firms all of a sudden come up with magical ways to go back in and get even more oil out of these out of those old wells. And so you had guys out there pitching these oil development projects with unheard of new technology that was going to resurrect these wells and would avoid having the world face an oil crunch because this great device was going to save the world. And I had one of these guys call me from New York and he sounded like he was auditioning for a part on The Sopranos. (laughs) Uh, he, He had all the lingo down. This is word for word. I'll never forget this. This is what he said to me. Use guys ups in Alberta's knows all about oils. <laughs> that 
is verbatim. I never forgotten that. And so this guy tried to pull the stunt across the country. And I said, I worked for the Securities Commission and went right past him. Didn't care. And he's still pitching me. And he called. He probably his, thought you were a security guard, actually. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But he's going, I'd like to talk to you a bit more about it right now. My dog died, so I'm not feeling too good. Can I call you back? I said, sure, whatever. And I thought that's the last I heard him. He called me back and he pitched me on this thing. So we recorded everything, took the guy to a hearing. He's in Ohio, actually. He's actually a lawyer. And he paid his fines at BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, right across the entire country. And he still kept doing it. And he got caught in the States doing it. And so these frauds can arise out of a perceived need or weakness in society or in the technology we have to further drive the fraud and to make people frightened that this is going to happen. So you should be prepared and you should be investing in these types of ventures now. So there's a lot of standard frauds, the pump and dump schemes, the Ponzi schemes have always been there and always will be there. Then we get frauds directly related to COVID right now, telling people that the stock market's going to fail. You have to invest in binary options or cryptocurrencies and the fiat is going to go down the toilet and everybody's going to be using cryptocurrencies of some kind and they're pitching cryptocurrencies to everybody. It's just unbelievable. And people fall for these. We also saw a huge uptick in binary options. And for most people- What the heck's a binary option? Well, you know, it's probably best I don't tell you because as long as you, if you don't understand it, then you might not be intrigued enough to investigate looking into buying it. Perfect. A binary option, it's just simple. It's based on the binary system of taking an option that's a digital currency, telling you that you can make obscene amounts of money. People poured money into these types of projects. They're sent their, their weekly or bi-weekly or monthly statements showing massive gains. And then the old hook comes in. Just think if you gave me 10,000 more, you'd be able to triple your profits. And so people would do that. And we had a case that was well publicized and I was directly involved in. And I had the horrible task of sitting down with the family because the father, who was a well-known entrepreneur in Edmonton, he was also a very charitable person. He donated a large amount of money to homeless people and to people who needed help as individuals. And he got taken for $786,000 on one of these binary option schemes. And he thought he was building a treasure chest for his family and to allow him to do more charitable work. And he shot himself four days before Christmas. Ouch. Oh, boy. And the family was amazing. They helped us to actually use his death as a positive. And we were able to work with Interpol and the Israeli authorities and get the binary options in Israel shut down because that's where most of it was coming from. So there's different types of fraud. So binary option is basically it's a cryptocurrency. It may as well be monopoly money for the amount of real gain you're going to see from it. So there's no, there's types of fraud. As I said, Ponzi has been around forever. Pump and dumps continue to exist. I think one thing that social media may make it easier for people to perpetrate a fraud, it also makes it easier for potential victims to go and do their own research. True. Which they couldn't do before. So as long as you're speaking to your clients as an example and saying, if you get an offer and you don't want to tell me about it, you want to do it, here's the things you need to do to investigate it to find out if it's actually legitimate or not. And if you think it's legitimate, maybe that's when you call Greg or myself and say, hey, what about this? Because then they can use their resources to dig a little bit further to see if this is 
actually a real thing or it's a fake thing because they can be very sophisticated. It's cheap to build a website. It's very cheap to build a really good website these days. So you have to be always cautious. So have you seen a big uptick in the internet-based fraud then, Don? Because certainly in when we're talking about the real estate projects and things that don't work out as planned, that's something that a lot of people have heard of. On the internet side of things, whether it's social media or email scams and things like that, what have you seen? What's the direction of those types of frauds? Well, the old Nigerian letter scams morphed and became the Nigerian email scam. So they've been around forever. They just changed the way they do it. They've just they've kept pace with the times along with everybody else. Some of the nastier internet ones, although we don't directly investigate them because we don't really have the authority and we don't have the mandate, is the people who befriend somebody online and then take advantage of them financially. We become involved, and there was a particular case I was involved in, heavily involved in, where a man was pitching binary options to his very wealthy uncle of his spouse. And they managed to take $1.3 million out of this guy's bank account. And he was must have been making some money kickback on it because he was living a very good lifestyle and he had no job and his wife didn't have a job. And yet they had beautiful homes and they took expensive vacations. And they took advantage of a relative. And so that type of thing can happen because it was all done online. So there was no physical bank. There was no physical presence. He never had to visit anybody. And these guys would just call him and say, hey, Mr. Such and Such, you need to give us more money. You're doing great. And then one day, the guy will ask for his money back and they go, oh, you had a really bad day in the market. You lost everything. That's it. It's over. And this guy's relative, the victim's relative, was taking commissions on all this stuff. And so that was a great internet-based scam. There was the Global Advocacy Group was another one that I worked on that we issued an investor alert. These people that were, these types of scams now, they operate on two levels. One, they take your money and then they start another scam to help you get back the money that they took. And so they have recovery room schemes. And so if you send me if you lost a million dollars or a hundred thousand for 10%, we will get you back all your money. Wow. And it's going to cost you <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. the amount of money oh, you boy. lost. They yeah. charge you a commission to recover the money that you lost. Yeah. They charge you a commission to recover the, that you lost, but you lost it to them. And now they're doing, they're not asking for your money about a great investment. They're asking for your money to help you get back the money you lost on the previous investment because they're saying, yes, we're aware of those guys. They're really bad. And it's one and the same. It's the same company. It's the same individuals. And a lot of this has roots in international crime syndicates. My own personal experience is tracking some of this down. Quite often, they they always cited the Cyprus Securities Commission. We're registered with the Cyprus Securities Commission, or we're registered with the commission of some little island off the Marshall Islands in the Pacific or something. And so I'd get these guys on the phone and say, and that's like saying you play professional hockey in Brazil. Sounds impressive, but Really? How good can you really be? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, don't ruin a dream. Yeah, exactly. And so these frauds, they're out there all the time and they work them internationally. The money flows back to St. Petersburg in Russia quite often. It goes to Cyprus. Now, a lot of this stuff is going into Romania and Bulgaria. So you have to be very careful. And one of the dangers, which is part and parcel of being made a victim, is the loss of your identity. 
so when somebody comes to YouTube and they want to open up account, you have to confirm they are who they say they are. And you have to confirm the source of the money that's going to form the basis of the investment account. Where's that money coming from? And that's the anti-money laundering, anti-terrorism law that the federal government passed. So you need to confirm people's ID. Well, they use the same pitch. Almost to illustrate, we're legitimate. You need to show us who you are. So people send their passports numbers. They send photocopies of their passports, a utility bill. So basically, they've just given everybody all their personal information, which is then resold to somebody. And so you may find yourself crossing international border one day and being arrested because somebody using your passport and your name and your ID has committed a crime and you just happen to end up in that country. So that's the other flip side of that is not only they want your money, they want your identification. And that's where it comes in in terms of the internet. And that's one of the bigger dangers as well, because they make money from the victim and they make money selling the victim's identity. You've identified a couple of groups of people or individuals that you've experienced that have been defrauded. Are there groups of people that are most vulnerable to fraud? In Alberta, for whatever reason, Albertans are very trusting. So in general, I would say the entire population of Alberta is at risk to some degree. The interesting thing is people who are wealthy are usually people that don't take big financial risks. People who are middle to lower income are the people that want to try to create wealth. They're the ones that put themselves out there, that pose the biggest danger to themselves because they want to be part of the 1%. And so they take these lofty schemes and they convince themselves and they convince family members and friends that they're real. But I would say if you wanted to break it down demographically, definitely I'm a senior, but those people who are way older than me that are still alive, they're really right pickings because they're usually in a nursing home. They're living in isolation. They often don't have close family relatives that are a part of their daily life. So they're making these types of decisions on their own. One guy here in Alberta even walked an elderly woman down to her bank and she handed him a check for $750,000 because he went and picked her up and took her there and took that amount of money. It was unbelievable. Well, he was probably really nice. Yeah. And the bank had some questions, but it's her money. They can't really stop her from taking out her money. And she did. So they're at risk. People who are emotionally troubled, somebody who may have just gone through a divorce or some other personal crisis where they're emotionally vulnerable and they're trying to feel good about themselves and one way to feel good about yourself apart from eating a lot of ice cream and buying yourself some new clothes is to make a lot of money. So people do make decisions at times when they shouldn't be making those decisions. I would disagree with the idea that people who fall prey to these schemes are greedy. Research at the University of Calgary has shown that most of these people have done this for altruistic reasons. It's to leave a legacy to their children or their grandchildren. And fraudsters know that because they will say things like, Greg and Colin, just think this time next year, you'll have both of your families down in the South Pacific on a beautiful beach with all your grandchildren, paying for it with the money that you're going to make from this investment. And you go, what's not to like? So they do it. And then they have to move in with their kids because they have no more money. I can tell you, I've had some family members that have been affected by fraud. Even my grandpa was affected and lost some money. And you're right. These are the most vulnerable people that are living on their own in places where they're surrounded by people of their same demographic that are also being targeted by the same people. So maybe in some way it forms some legitimacy when they're in the middle of it because they're all talking about it. 
now you're stepping into the area we call affinity fraud. And that's usually a person of trust that misuses that trust. We've seen it in churches, Catholic churches, Baptist churches down in Cardston area, where people that are in a position of power and influence, they take advantage. The one case that we just finished trying that I was a witness for, for the ASC, was the Ron Aikens case. And it's really odd for some reason. I can't recall the other guy's name, even though I was involved in it. But since I retired, I just let most of this slip by. But he was a pastor and he just took people's money. It was ridiculous the amount of money they took. I'll get you the name of that one. We don't need it for this yeah. episode. Okay, but... you don't. Yeah, but <laughs> it was a land development deal. And this guy was a pastor and he just took people's money and without thinking about it, we've had a deacon of a church take money. You saw the scam with the Lutheran Church of Canada that we investigated that took tens and tens of millions of dollars. And some of these old people, some of these people, old people took their lives because it was everything they had. And if you can't trust the church, who can you trust? So these things are always used to someone's advantage when they're hatching a scheme. Let me ask you this then. On that note, if you find yourself in the middle of something like this, where can a person turn? How do they start this process to get out of it? The first thing they should do is tell their physician. They need to talk to somebody, and a physician is sworn to confidentiality. If you tell a family member, quite often the family member becomes angry because they've just seen their inheritance go down the drain because they have a vested interest in that person dying with a lot of money. And so by telling your physician, one, you've told somebody, that's the first step. Your physician can help you emotionally. She can give you counseling and recommend counseling to you the way they have the health care system now. When you see your doctor, there's all these built-in little people you can see. And then the next step is to call the Alberta Securities Commission. You will talk to the public information officer, have all the details handy, date of first contact, person's name, even though it's likely it's not the real name, but it gives us a start. We may have a file on that name already. We could well, very well know who they are, or they just use the real name if they're quite brazen. Have all the details, checks, any financial transactions, have all those records to help speed up the process of the Securities Commission to make an evaluation of, first thing, is it under our jurisdiction? Not every investment is a security, and not every security is an investment. So you have to be mindful that we would like to help, but we don't have the authority in that area. You need to go over here and speak to this agency. People will call us, well, I got taken in by these colored diamond schemes that you hear on the radio, invested in colored diamonds. Well, and they were investing in it, but diamond is not defined as a security under the act. So has, it doesn't rest with us. That would be for law enforcement because that's a straight out potentially criminal fraud. So that's the first thing. Is it something the AAC can do? If it is, and you provide enough information, then they're likely then going to bring you in for an interview. And they will ask you to bring documentation to help them document your complaint so they can begin to move forward on it. And then if you know your family well, and you know they're not going to blow off the handle, by all means, you can bring them into it. But I think the first one is to talk to your doctor, get it off your chest. Your doctor can't reveal anything. And then and go from there. And then, like I say, contact the ASC and then inform your family that this has happened. It's a moot point to complain about it, but you've got the process already started to try to take care of things. Don, 
So what kind of things should investors be watching out for? Like, what are some of the triggers that you might identify as you're possibly being scammed or being at the risk of sort of getting involved in a fraudulent scheme? What should they look out for? Quite often that depends on where you became aware of it. So you will see on Facebook, as an example, you're looking at your Facebook page and whatever, and Salad pops up, hey, call me. And this is what the guy from the Shark Tank, Kevin O'Leary, this is what Kevin O'Leary invested in. They often will use his name and image without permission. Oh, I see. Kevin O'Leary loves this stuff. And if you know who Kevin O'Leary is and you're in Canada, they got you right there. That's the first step. And then you start to look at, it's going to make you money quickly. Well, there's no quick route to riches unless you buy the winning lottery ticket. And there's no risk-free investment. There's no tax-free investment. You can't expect to invest in something that, and people do. My favorite one was the battery that charges itself as it depletes itself. It doesn't seem like it would work that well. It actually worked quite well in terms of them taking a lot of money out of people's pockets. So gadgets. Gadgets are always sold. There was the can balance system. You put it on your car tire so your tire will never come out of balance. Well, they do that now. They're called weights. Unless you throw one, you're fine. They were Samsung was going to put it in all their washing machines so your washing machine wouldn't bang around if the load got taken off center. So all of these incredibly innovative things from people you've never heard of. And the biggest question... I think with anybody, any client being approached to invest in something, the first question they should always ask is, why are you coming to me? Why don't you take it all to Warren Buffett? I'm sure he would be more than happy to give you the money. And really, those are the two key questions. And that usually shuts a lot of them up right there and they'll just hang up. Take it to Warren Buffett. Why are you calling me? And how did you get my number? It's very interesting. I was looking at an article from the Ontario Securities Commission. I assume you guys don't compete against each other when you're in the different territories. You're kind of all trying to do the same job. Well, yeah, because we have Canadian Securities Administration, which harmonizes all the rules across the country. So they put out this thing and it said, warning, the four signs of a scam. And you've touched on many of them. Number one, high returns and low risk. Greg and I have heard this one many times over the years from people that just say they found something and... You're getting a higher return without any risk. doesn't make any sense. Number two was hot tip or insider information. Number three, pressure to buy now. And number four, the seller not registered to sell investments. So that's your, to your example of exempt market representative, perhaps trying to sell something they're not registered to. Or just somebody who says they're an advisor like you and Greg, but they don't have the documents to back it up. And most people don't even know where to begin to look for that information. How to find out if your person contacting you is registered to deal in securities. Believe it or not, that's the biggest weapon we can use and to help people say, well, here's his name. He's not registered. Do not talk to this person. It's pretty much is a shut and dry case at that point. Or they were registered. But then again, these guys also suffer from identity theft. So if somebody picks up the phone and calls you and says, hey, I'm Greg Kaminsky from CIBC Wealth Management, blah, blah, blah. They're not allowed to call potential clients. They're not allowed to cold call people. So if somebody calls you saying they're in a representative, they're in violation right away because they aren't allowed to call you. Interesting. Well, and it's the kind of thing, Don, I mean, I recall back, and this is going back probably 12 or 14 years in Calgary. And at that time, 
GIC rates had come down quite low. A five-year GIC might have been, let's say, 4% or something. And I remember many of my even wealthier clients came and said, well, this is offering 8% guaranteed investment certificates backed by gold. And the entire thing that they were provided was like a one-page color brochure saying that GICs were 8% backed by gold. And that was it. And people became very interested in it. So it's, I guess that gets to that point about, yeah, if you offer somebody that seems like it's a higher return without any more risk, I guess people are tempted to just go ahead without looking into those details. And in that particular case, I believe that one did end up in court. But of course, there was no gold or there was not enough gold to back up whatever they might have been offering. And I guess it ultimately was a bit of a Ponzi scheme. You bring up a good point. People often would call about GICs and say, well, these guys are breaking the rule. They're guaranteeing that they can pay me 3.5%. A GIC is not a security. A GIC is a guaranteed income certificate. It doesn't fall under the purview, which is why bank tellers can sell them. Interesting. And so the GIC is backed, and it is a guaranteed return. When someone is pitching a security, if you were to say, all of a sudden, the vaccine works and everybody's better, and you would say, buy WestJet. Their shares are going to triple. Well, you can't make that representation, nor can anybody else. If somebody tells you that you're going to double your money, they're in violation. If they tell you it's going to go from $5 to $8, they're in violation. They could say you could do anywhere from 0 to 100% return in the stock. That's allowed because you're not stating a fact. And so 0 is right, and so 100% is right but they can't state unequivocally that it's going to do 100%. People get caught in that. And so people get confused and they say, well, how come the bank can tell me I can make 8% on a GIC, but Colin can't tell me I can make 8% of my stock? Well, I can tell you what Colin, being Colin, would say is, I guarantee you'll have a return. Because even a negative return is a return. That's right. I can guarantee you that you will still own the stock tomorrow when the whole world's gone to hell in a handbasket. What are regulators? What are the ASC and the financial firms doing these days? Because obviously they're extremely active in trying to prevent identity theft and things like that. What else is everyone doing and everyone in the financial sector doing to try to prevent or minimize fraud and financial abuse and things like that? Nothing's really changed in that regard because everybody that I worked is still working. They're all working from home. Certain changes have been made reporting issuers of those companies who trade publicly are required to provide continuous disclosure documentation, such as audited financials and management discussion and analysis, who most of your clients will be familiar with those terms. They've been granted extensions in order for those reporting periods. So they've been granted some extra headroom there to not get them done today, but two or three months down the road. So nothing has changed. The one thing that people need to take away from when they're looking at a regulator like Alberta or BC, it doesn't really matter. They all operate with the same mandate is their biggest role is reviewing continuous disclosure. They're out there looking at the balance sheets of every single company that is publicly traded every single day. They go through them all. They shut those guys down who aren't meeting those continuous disclosure obligations. They will cease trade them for a short period of time. They will cease trade them. And once a company has ceased traded, and, and this is probably important for your clients as well, hopefully they don't find themselves in the position of the company that they own shares in being ceased traded, but it does happen, is the only people that can lift the cease trade order is not the regulator, but is the company that's under the cease trade order. They have to satisfy 
the deficiencies that put the cease trade order on the first place until they do that until they correct their mistakes and come up to date on their filings shareholders in most cases can't sell their shares unless those shares trade outside the country an otc stock is an example then they can be granted an exemption to sell only sell their shares not buy but sell them so i guess if i can touch on this quickly the otc market is one that you have to be very mindful of as an investor, particularly the OTC pinks. The Q, the first two tiers of the OTC, to some degree, they have to provide some financial disclosure. Some have to provide audited. But the thing to remember is that the OTC is not an exchange. It's not recognized as an exchange, either here in Canada or in the United States, the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's an over-the-counter market. All they're doing is matching bids and asks. That's all they're doing. They're setting a buyer up with a seller and a seller up with a buyer. That's all they do, but they are not an exchange. So when you invest on those, you take a really big risk that you may never, ever be able to sell those shares. And that's something that in the exempt market, we brought in rules that said, in order to sell an exempt market product, you have to be registered to advise in or deal in securities to sell that stuff. The companies have to provide audited financials now, which they never had to do before. But we still allow that section of the market, the OTC market, to sell to Canadians without meeting obligations that they would be required to meet if they were trying to sell those stocks in Canada. So that's one area that a lot of the fraud is OTC companies. And we shut down a huge number talking about securities fraud. When cannabis was legalized or heading towards legalization in Canada, the number of companies that were coming cannabis countries, yesterday they were a mining firm, today they're a cannabis company. But many of those, even though they were based in Canada, they traded on the U.S. market. Unfortunately for a lot of Canadians, not only in the cannabis, but any factor where you might be looking at a Canadian company that trades on the UTC, if they're trading down there, but the guiding mines are in Canada, in a jurisdiction in Canada, they're deemed to be a reporting issuer here. So they have to meet the same disclosure standards as a company trading on the TSX or the TSXV. When they don't, we cease trade them. And those Canadians are stuck. The stock is still trading actively in the United States, but Canadians cannot buy and sell that stock unless they get an exemption granted to them in order to do so. That's a high-risk thing is to invest in pink sheets. But people do it because it's cheap. Let's just end this with one final thought from you. What's the number one thing an investor should do in any transaction before entering it? Well, I would say it all comes under the heading of to quote an American phrase, I'm from Missouri. In other words, show me. Show me that this is real. Show me that this is legitimate. Show me that I'm not taking a risk that I shouldn't be taking. So in other words, answer all of those questions that are going to answer all of those red flag issues. Guaranteed results, high yields. You have to buy it now. Who gave you the tip? You have to answer all of those questions. Missouri is the show me state. So show me this thing is legitimate. Until they do, don't throw your money out there because there's a very good chance you just threw it down a dark hole and you're never going to see it again. That's great advice. Well, maybe we'll end it there on a high note. Show me. Show me. <laughs> Not show me the money. Show me you're legitimate. Exactly. All right, Don. Well, hey, thanks again for joining us today. And 
We really appreciate you sharing your expertise and maybe on another show we'll be able to get you back and you can tell us all about your music industry experience because I think that's actually even a more fascinating discussion. It might be hard to tie into investment, but... Uh, we can give it a try. We could buy... We talk about David Bowie and his bonds. Well, <laughs> that's right. There we go. We'll find a connection. Bowie's bonds. I like it. All right, Don. You know about Bowie's bonds, eh? Well, I guess I'm going to know now. Tell me. Well, David Bowie was the first musician to collateralize his publishing catalog and sold it to a company, and the company issued bonds against future returns owning that catalog. So instead of David Bowie getting paid a royalty every time his song was used in a commercial or someone recorded one of his songs or was performed live or on television somehow, instead of David Bowie getting that royalty, the company issuing the bond got that royalty, and they used that to pay back investors. And so he walked out, he did a $1.3 billion bond offering Wow! on his music catalog. And how's that working out for investors? Any idea? I don't know how it went, but it happened 35 years ago Well, when he did that bond I got to look that one up. I'm going to look that one up. We're going to do some digging. Yeah, they were Bowie bonds. Cool. There you go. Good. All right, Don. Well, thanks again. You're welcome. Take care, guys. Well, that was a great discussion with Don Rogers, as you say, former enforcement agent with the Alberta Securities Commission, recently retired. I learned a lot about enforcement and fraud. Greg, I was going to tell you about some fraud tips of my own that I've come across recently. Sure. I have family members that will say they got emailed from Netflix because their subscription had expired. Oh, yes. And they want to go ahead and reply and get their subscription back up. And I've seen this a number of times recently. And I always say to them, just check the email address that it came from. And the email address will be like some random grouping of letters with a, not even an at shaw.ca or at netflix.com. It'll be like at, I don't know, some random word dot ru or something. Yes. And it's funny you mentioned that because I get my email server separates out the junk or what it thinks is junk. And I get so many from supposedly from different companies and I'll name a few. These are just, and remember these are scams. These are not real, but I've got from Walmart shoppers, drug Mart, Costco, and these all could be places that I would shop. And so it makes me think that, Oh, these could be legitimate. But as you say, when you check the email address, the one from Walmart is info at EVLOC. It's like evlovocalization.nl, which sounds like a Netherlands email address or something. Doesn't so exactly sound like a corporate email address. Doesn't sound like Walmart to me. And so absolutely, you've got to be careful. And particularly with concerns about identity theft, you've just got to be so careful with who you share information with. Exactly. Hey, so on November 26th, we're doing a webinar. We should mention this. The yes. webinar is on... It's financial planning. It's a financial planning webinar on having a plan versus planning. Two very different things. And we really hope that people will come and enjoy the webinar. Yeah, it should be good. Looking forward to that. All right. Well, I guess that wraps it up for today. That's right. And we'll see you next time. Next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast.
The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.